You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, my name is Ron Friends, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. I am your host, Curtis Findlay, and I have an extra special interview today because I was able to get uh, both Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends on the phone together. So we got to have um, a nice conversation about their run on Amazing Spider-Man. And it was just a joy to have both of them on the line at the same time. Um, And let me tell you, they are a blast. What a great friendship they have, a great camaraderie. You can really tell uh, through their little dialogue and banter back and forth. It's just (laughs) that itself made the interview worthwhile, and not to mention all of the -the behind-the-scenes extra stuff that we get to learn about their run on Amazing Spider-Man. As you may know, the the end of their run as Spider-Man was a little abrupt, and there were a bunch of things behind the scenes that uh, were going on that... um, that kind of pushed them out, and it was obvious that they didn't really want to talk about that, so I didn't push it, Um, but that information is pretty easy to find if you Google it, so so if you want that story, you'll have to kind of find out for yourself. I completely forgot to ask them to uh, plug their newest books, whatever they're working on now. So you'll want to check out Blue Baron from Sit Comics. That's what Ron Friends is working on right now with Sal Buscema. And uh, you'll want to head over to Archie Comics to, to read Tom DeFalco's Reggie and Me. As always, you can hear more exclusive interviews on our Patreon site, which is patreon.com slash thunderquack. And that's how we uh, raise money. If, with your support, you can... Uh, help keep all of our podcasts on the Thunderquack Podcast Network running. Um, it's We give them away for free, so we would just ask, uh, please lend us a buck or two to help us out and uh, and keep the, the rising costs of web hosting and all that kind of stuff um, at a, a reasonable rate for us. Now, let's see. On to the interview. This is a companion episode to Amazing Spider-Man Volume 15, Ghosts of the Past. So you can read that epic collection and then uh, listen to our episode and then find out all about the behind the scenes through this episode. So without further ado, here is Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. Well, glad to have both of you on the line at the same time. This is great. And this is what we tried to do when we were talking about Thor, but that didn't work out. So I'm glad it's working this time. For our listeners, of course, Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends, the uh, the duo behind um, the amazing run on Thor that we talked about in a previous episode. And today, today we're going to be talking about the Amazing Spider-Man. Are you guys ready for this? Uh, I'm yep. I'm ready, but shouldn't he say the legendary Tom DeFalco? Tom? The, of course, of course. My mistake. My apologies, Tom. The legendary Tom DeFalco. <laughs> That's all right. I'm already morally offended. Okay. I'm, I'm done. And, I'm oh. out of here. Oh, man. And, well. his unin- and his unindicted co-conspirator, Ron Friend. <laughs> Wonderful. So this, uh, this, your run on a Spider-Man in the 80s was your first pairing together. Is that right? 
That is correct. How did that come to be? I, I will say I, I will say that we had met before that. Uh, Tom hired me on uh, Marvel Team Up uh, as he was the Spider-Man editor, and Team Up was under the Spider-Man banner. Right. And he had seen he had seen some work I had done uh, with Spider-Man on KSR and figured it was worth taking a chance on the new kid. So I did some Marvel team ups for him and we had met in person at a Pittsburgh show at one point and went out to dinner with uh, Jackson Geis, who back then was just Butch Geis. And uh, we had a great time and it was very obvious in that conversation that we liked the same kind of comics. We, we liked the same era of Marvel and were in love with the characters and, and shared a real love of uh, of classic Marvel style. So, you know, there was a connection there. There was a professional relationship there. But then Tom could pick it up as to how Danny Fingeroth finagled him onto the book. When I was the editor of Spider-Man, uh, Roger Stern was, was writing The Amazing Spider-Man. If you've ever read any of Roger Stern's Spider-Man stuff, it was terrific. Yes, it sure was. I, I'm, you know, I'm a real Roger... Roger Stern geek. Um, and at one point, Danny Fingerrock came in to, to inform me that uh, uh, Roger had decided to leave Spider-Man because he had, um, had the opportunity to go uh, write the Avengers. And I, I, and I looked at Danny and I thought, oh, come on, you know, what idiot are you going to... You, you, is going to follow Roger Stern on, on Amazing Spider-Man. Because um, whoever, you know, followed Roger would just look like a total idiot in comparison. <laughs> um, you know, part of my job at that time was to list freelancers who were available for work. So I, I looked at my list of writers and I started rattling off some names to Danny. And I looked up and he had this weird smile on his face. And I said to him, why aren't you writing these down? his name's down. He said, because I, I already know who I want on the book. And I said, well, if you already know who you want on the book, why are you wasting my time? <laughs> and he, he looked at me and said, well, because you're, you're the idiot I want on the book. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was taken aback and, and said, listen, I, you know, in, in, in those days, we were, you know, the character was more important than the creative person. And characters all had a special voice and a special way of talking. And um, I was not convinced I could write Spider-Man-style dialogue. And I you know, told Danny that I really didn't think I could do it. And he said, well, you know, why don't you, you try, you know, try for a couple of issues. Uh, you know, Roger is going gonna to leave early, so he's plotted a couple of issues, so you can script a couple of issues over Roger's plots and, you know, get into the feel of it. And I said, oh, you know, okay, I could, I could try to see, you know, see if I can do it, but, you know, only on a temporary basis. If I can't do it, you, you know, you just get somebody else right away. Um, and he, you know, informed me that Ron would be um, doing the issues that I would be scripting. And I thought, hey, you know, that, that, that's really cool because, you know, you know, Ron, as, as Ron mentioned, uh, we had met, uh, we had worked work together and you know i knew we were on the same you know plane in, in terms of you know how we looked at the characters and especially how we looked at spider-man so i thought yeah you know sounds like fun 
So, so I'll do a couple of issues. I'll find out I can't do it, and then they'll, you know, fire me and get somebody else. <laughs> and that turned into a few years, didn't it? Yeah. Um, and, and Ron, I think you, you were only there temporarily also, right? Yes. Initially, I was uh, told that uh, John Romita Jr. was going to take like six months off to go get X-Men uh, on a healthy schedule. And then he was going to return to Spider-Man. He was, he was planning on doing both Spider-Man and the X-Men. And uh, so I was told by Danny that basically I was being hired to spot those six months. And that was my, my original expectation and, and nothing more than that. Uh, from what I understand, and I thanked JR for this the first time I met him in per- person at a convention, was that he came into the office at one point and was looking through some of the stuff we were doing. And, uh, and Danny said, how's it going on X-Men? Is everything going according to plan? Is everything on schedule? Because, you know, we, we're going to stick with the plan. And, uh, but he made it clear that he was really liking what Tom and I were doing. He thought we were gelling as a team and all that kind of stuff. And uh, J.R. very graciously looked at Danny and at one point and said, you know, if, if you're really happy with what they're doing, let's just keep it the way it is. They can, you know, let them have it, and I'm happy on the X-Men, so let's keep it that way. And Danny said, if you're absolutely sure, J.R., because I do not want to, you know, I, I don't want to go back on the deal. And J.R. gave it his blessing, and, uh, you know, we chatted about it. The first time I got a chance to meet him, we chatted about it over dinner, and I thanked him for my run on Spider-Man. So uh, there's very little that could have been more of a gift to me than that. I was uh, always a big Spider-Man fan, and it was a dream come true. Wow. So So then uh, in that case, what was the first issue that you both took over that was kind of your official? 251. I did did 248. I did The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man in 248 with uh, Roger for Assistant Editor's Month. The only thing that's kind of interesting about that was I, I went very heavy Ditko on it because there wasn't a lot of action in it, and I wanted Spider-Man to be immediately recognizable just standing there as Spider-Man. Right. And I felt Ditko was a way to kind of do that. And uh, I remember at the time there was like one shot of Spider-Man where I was making his neck thinner and I was you know doing him a little more wiry, and I did reverse webbing on one of the headshots like Ditko would do from time to time. And there was a lot of, Danny was very uncomfortable with it. He wasn't sure that that was going to fly. Of course, keeping in mind, this was all pre-McFarlane. Right. Not, not long after that, uh, even Rich Buckler, or maybe he might have even already been doing it. He was doing some Ditko on, uh, on Peter Parker as well. So we were, we were both kind of going back to the roots of the character and, and kind of studying that. But I did 248, but my first with Tom, the, uh, the first two issues, 251 and 252, were scripted by Tom off of the Roger Plotz that he was referring to. And, uh, of course, that was uh, a wrap-up of the Hobgoblin for the moment and uh, the black costume. Uh, right. So the black costume issue was done by two fill-in guys. <laughs> wow. And Brett Breeding, who was also, you know, hadn't been hooked into the book in any regular way either so it was done by three fill-in guys that's amazing and it's become so iconic 
Um, looking right. back at that, what were your thoughts about doing the black costume uh, when it first came about? Did it seem sort of gimmicky? Tom? Well, the black costume was, you know, in, in those days we really weren't thinking in terms of gimmicks. You know, the black costume was one of the things uh, with uh, Secret Wars, uh, Shooter wanted to have a lot of vi- some visual differences um, as to how the characters, you know, left for Secret Wars and, and how they came back from Secret Wars. Right. And the black, the black costume was one of those things. And um, like I say, in, th- in those days, we weren't really thinking about gimmicks or, or anything else like that. We were just, you know, trying to come up with things that would be interesting, you know, story stuff. That's a technical term, story stuff. Uh, um, I remember that word of the of, of uh, Spider-Man's costume, you know, somehow got out. And this is, you know, in the days way before the internet and stuff. You know, a couple of fanzine guys wrote these, you know, protest articles about it. We got, you know, a ton of, you know, uh, and, and I mean a ton of mail, negative mail about how, we were committing sacrilege and this was a terrible thing. And the the male scared shooter. (laughs) And he came in and and he said to me, uh, what issue is Spider-Man get the black costume? And I said, 252. He said, get rid of it, 253. (laughs) And I said to him, you know, Jim, he's he's not even going to get it for eight issues in Secret Wars. We can't get rid of it before before he he even gets it. Right, because those two um, series were running concurrently, right? Yeah, so I, I I ended up having a you know a long involved let's let's call it discussion with him and um, you know somehow convinced him that we should at least wait till the eighth issue of of, of the run. I have to get you know two fifty two. I guess it's two sixty or two sixty one, something like that. And, and he kept saying, "Yeah, but you know, if Spider Man sales go down, this is all on you. And, and if sales go down too much, you're, you're going to be fired off the book." And I thought. Hey, I'm only a filling guy anyway. What do I care? <laughs> I'll be flying long before then. We, we convinced him to keep the costume at least for the, the until he got it in Secret Wars. Yeah, and at then the very next month, I think the way it times out is he got it in Secret Wars, and the very next month we did the issue with the original is back, and he found out that the the, the suit was a symbiote, which was Tom's idea. Uh, on the visual side, I I was completely. Taken, uh, I was blindsided by it. Uh, I received uh, the plot, and I received some uh, some Xeroxes in the mail that were Xeroxes of Mike Zek's sketches of the black costume. Before reading the plot, I said, so is this a new villain? <laughs> and they said, no, it's Spider-Man's suit. Now, I told you I was a fan. From the time I was six or seven years old, if you asked Ron Friends, well, seven or eight, actually, to be more accurate, if you asked Little Ron Friends what he wanted to, to do when he grew up, it was grow up, work for Marvel Comics, and draw Spider-Man. Right. Okay. So 251 was a joy. It was just an amazing thing in my life. So when I found out that I'm getting here, I'm going to get to do six months of Spider-Man, and he's going to be, he's not going to look like Spider-Man. Oh, man. I, you know, that <laughs> <Yeah>. sucks. <laughs> I was not thrilled about that wow. initially. Yeah. Uh, and there was. There was a lot of negativity around it. It was uh, very bizarre. Uh, but you have to keep in mind, and, it, and it's difficult to do in this day and age, that this was pre-gimmick. It was pre, 
you know, people cost, uh, costume changes all the time. It was pre-all of that. It was pre-internet. It was pre-all of that. And uh, so there was. There was a lot of apprehension about it. And uh, Tom, you know, I think rightly negotiated that, well, we can't get rid of it before he gets it in Secret Wars. So the month after he gets it in Secret Wars, we'll pull the trigger and explain what it is and give him a reason to get rid of it. But, of course, by that time, with snail mail, it, had, it was a hit. Once yeah. people saw it, they didn't hate it. That's so funny. They hated the concept of it, but yeah. once they saw the yeah. black suit, they didn't hate it. They loved no, it. No, they, they, they loved it. Um, as Ron is hitting, at a certain point, Shooter came back and said, you know, the black costume, you should just keep it. Everybody loves it. Just keep it. And I said, Jim, we're getting rid of it. It, we've already, yeah, we've already penciled the issue where we're getting rid of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the pencil, will, the, the issue that we're getting rid of it is going to the printer this week. Well, can't you change it? Now, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I said no. I said, well, you know, you got to bring it back. Come on, come up with something. And I said, well, uh, do, do we really have to? He said. You better bring it back because if sales go down, it'll be on you. (laughs) (laughs) Which is where the idea of Black Cat making a cloth version came from. And, of course, we all know what happened with the black suit in the hands of uh, Michelini and Bagley and and, uh, Todd McFarlane and on and on and on. uh, But, yeah, it was was a crazy time. And believe me, there was... It was it was a lot of joy in Mudville when I got to do I mean when I got to do the splash page where he puts on the red and blue suit again and is running up the wall and uh, you know it was a big splash page with a hobgoblin leering over him and everything I was thrilled that cover was a joy yeah so uh, I was happy to have him back in the red and blues no doubt about it so uh, well good you know I, I I can live with either one God knows I've done a lot of commissions in the last thirty years. A black suit Spider-Man, and Hobgoblin, for that matter. Right. One thing with the black suit, when when it came back from Secret Wars, the black suit had all these extra powers. So I went into Shooter and I said, so how does, how does this work? Uh, why does it have all these extra powers? He said, you're the writer, come up with something. <laughs> and and that, that's how uh, you know Ron and I came up with the symbiote. Uh-huh. Okay. I, I, I never knew what a symbiote was, so you came up with a symbiote. Because it could have been nanotech or something, but uh, certainly it wouldn't have been as interesting down the road if it was. No. You know? So uh, I think you made some very, you made some choices as Tom was always wont to do. He made choices that have legs for the character, which is always an idea that uh, must never be lost. Is you have to pick directions and you make choices for your characters that have more story possibilities down the road. Let's talk a little bit about the Hobgoblin, because he's a very prominent figure through your run here, but he wasn't, he's kind of in the middle of his story. So when you guys uh, jumped onto this title, did you know what Roger Stern's long-term plans were for this character, or did you kind of just um, take him in whatever direction you decided to at that point? Well, the answer to your questions is yes and yes. When the Hobgoblin was first created... Roger was going to reveal who he was, you know, right away. And I said, don't do that. Let's, let's do a mystery like they did with the Green Goblin. And, uh, and he said, okay, but, uh, you know, he thought about it. He says, okay, but I'm not going to tell, tell you who the, who the character is. 
And I said, well, okay. And I was the editor. I said, I'm going to, you know, I'm used to work with mysteries and stuff. So I'll, I'll keep a list of people that are, that are eliminated. And when you figure out who you think it is, we'll compare notes and, and, and decide if you're, if you're correct. And when I took over writing Spider-Man, I said to him, okay, Roger, you got to tell me who, who you think the Hobgoblin is. And he, he said to me, Roderick Kingsley's evil twin. <laughs> okay. Now, now, for all, in all fairness, he probably didn't say that, Tom, because Roger doesn't see them as twins. We've come right out and called them twins, but Roger claims that he never actually saw them as twins, just that well, they look me, a lot alike and they're brothers. So. Okay. Uh, they're brothers, but to me, he, he referred to them as evil twins. Okay, well then. All right. <laughs> there you go. And, <laughs> now, you know, I, I thought... You know, we've, we've never seen Roderick Kingsley's evil twin. You know, in between the time when I was editor of Spider-Man and became the writer, uh, Roger had written um, an issue where, where Rod, Roderick Kingsley has a thought balloon and refers to his brother. Mm-hmm. I was, was was unaware of that. And I thought, you know, I, I don't want to do an evil twin kind of thing. That's bullshit. Uh-huh. Um, and thought... Okay, Rod, thank you, and, and then, you know, we went off in our own direction. Yeah, that, that's definitely so, what, what the term he used for me, because I said, did Roger ever tell you who the Hobgoblin who he was planning on making the Hobgoblin? And, and Tom did at that time say, uh, Roderick Kingsley's evil twin, but we're not doing that. Uh, and yeah. I had read Roger's run on Peter Parker is really where he had a little bit more mileage with Kingsley, mm-hmm. with uh, Marie Severin. And uh, so I was aware of the character, and I knew who he was and all that, but I I hadn't made that connection either. I, I hadn't, as a reader, hadn't really caught that reference or anything. So I, you know, I had to agree that, you know, Roger didn't really have time to, to build it up or, or create what he wanted to create before he might have revealed it. So I didn't think we were, certainly I didn't think we were obligated to use it. And, uh, you know, given that we would be artificially throwing stuff in at the last minute, I thought it was probably better if we went our own way as well. Right. Okay. I mean, Roger's one of my, fa- he's one of my favorite people, let alone one of my favorite writers, but we did it with his blessing, I'm sure. Yeah, and, and like I said, I'm a Roger Stern geek. I love what Roger was doing, so I don't mean to be you know, downgrading him in any way, shape, or form, because... Especially since he came back and took it back and did exactly that. And we had yeah, fun yeah. writing Roderick Kingsley in Spider-Girl. So. Yeah. So I, I just didn't think it worked at, at the time. And, um, you know, uh, so we wanted to go in a different direction. And ironically, Tom, you know, the fact that Roger didn't have time to set up everything he wanted to set up before he would have revealed it anyway... That something similar kind of happened to us. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you regret that you didn't get to uh, do the whole big reveal for your for your story? Well, uh, I think our story ended badly. And, you know, due to a number of different things. And uh, at the time, you know, I was certainly not happy about the way, you know, we were taken off of Spider-Man. And was very frustrated by it. But, you know, that was years ago, so at this stage of the game, who cares? 
Right. Okay. I mean, actually, by the time it happened, it, it was hard to, you know, so there were so many things that had happened leading up to it as far as scenes that Tom wanted to get in there to to set up who he wanted it to be and all this kind of stuff that, that never they were getting edited out and things were being messed up and uh you know by the time it, the you know he by the time Jim Osley did what he did in the Spider-Man Wolverine thing uh, he he was already playing games he was already messing with the original flow of the story so it tended to to take a lot of the bloom off of the whole reveal rose anyway, you know. Uh, no pun intended, considering that was one of our characters. But anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, we we just kind of, yeah, it it, it, it was, uh, it just kind of petered out, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, Again, no pun intended. His name being Peter, Peter Parker. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Let's go back a little bit then, and. Um... And, and talk about the the better times, <laughs> and uh, okay. Um, so you uh, you dealt with a lot of changes in in Peter's supporting cast, and um, two of the big changes were uh, um, Mary Jane finding out Peter's secret, and the other one was um, Harry and Liz having a baby. Can you speak a little bit about those two uh, those two storylines? Well, Tom Tom can't take any credit for Mary Jane knowing uh, Pete's identity because he, the way he tells it, it's this metaphysical writer thing <laughs> where the characters just start talking to you and suddenly I realize that Mary Jane knew. So, you know, he gets no credit for that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, they talk I, I himself out of any credit, credit at all for, uh, for a wonderful moment in Spider-Man history because apparently it was, uh, it was, a, it was a fictional character that came up with the idea. <laughs> Go ahead, Tom. To... Defend your life. Yeah, what do you have to say about that, well, Tom? I, I, I no, Ron is, a, Ron is 100% correct. I, I can't take any credit for it. I wish I could. Um, we, had act, we had worked out the, that particular plot, um, and we had a different ending in mind. And we knew where the next couple of issues were going to go. And, um, you know, uh, the, the plot was approved. And I you know, was sitting there typing it. And I got to that scene. And what was supposed to happen was Peter was supposed to give Mary Jane some sort of story. And she was supposed to kind of buy it. And, and whatever happened, I, I don't remember. But as he starts to give the story, I, you know, I, you know, Ended up typing, Mary, you know, Mary Jane turns to Peter and says, you know, enough of the bullshit. I know, I've always known. And I, you know, typed it. I, I looked at that and thought, where the hell did that come from? And <laughs> just sat there for a while. And then, and he called you know, me after hours. I, yeah, because we're, I, we're 24, I, 24 7 creators. Yes, and, I called Rodney to panic. Yeah, well, I, call, I, he, I got a call from Tom in the evening. And he said, I got a question for you. I said, okay. He says, how do you feel about the fact that Mary Jane knows that uh, Peter Parker is Spider-Man? And I, I remember going, hmm. I said, when did she find out? And he goes, forget about that. We don't care about that for the moment. How do you feel about the concept that Mary Jane drops the bomb on Pete that I, I know you're Spider-Man? And I thought about it for a few minutes, and, and I said, you know, I, I immediately started running the Rolodex in my head as a Spider-Man fan, 
was there anything that I could think of immediately that violated that as a premise? You know? Right. Well, was there ever was there ever a thought balloon where Mary Jane went, I don't know who Spider-Man is? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, not that Mary Jane would sound that way. <laughs> but it was, you know, I, I, I immediately started thinking in that direction, but I couldn't think of anything. I, you know, I, I couldn't think of anything that wouldn't be covered by her not wanting Pete to know that she knew. So we, we decided to, to uh, continue under the auspice that we were never necessarily going to tell you exactly when she figured it out. Uh, that was, again, uh, handled by different creative people who decided that that was a question worth asking. That was Jerry Conway and Alex Saviuk in that graphic novel. Uh, but, you know, we, we were going to proceed with the idea that, yeah, she, you know, she figured it out. She's not stupid. And there, was enough, there were, have been enough moments, especially when they were involved during the Jerry Conway-Ross Andrew period. There were plenty of situations that lent itself to the idea that she could have figured it out and that she was still putting up with constantly being stood up and everything that she might have she might have figured it out so uh yeah i i thought it i i thought it but the one thing we really agreed on is that it was a terrific opportunity uh beyond getting them involved romantically again, it was a fantastic uh, opportunity to explore Mary Jane as a character. Mm-hmm. Which is, as you can see, in, what, what, what was it, 259 or something, which is exactly what we, 258, 259, whatever it was, is exactly what we did. We used it initially as uh, a, an opportunity for the two characters, even though they had been romantically involved, you know, for, for a period of time and everything, this was their moment to really come clean with each other. Right. Uh, and Mary Jane decides to come clean completely with Peter about her past, things that she had never talked about before. And the entire time, Peter's thinking, this woman just bared her soul to me. Do I really want to try to come up with something to obfuscate what she has figured out? You know, do I, do I really want to do that to her when she is reaching out as a really, truly, uh, as a friend? And, of course, by the end of that issue, he, he decides, uh, very subtly, I thought, not to deny it anymore. And to uh, and, and we certainly intended for that to take the relationship in a, in a new direction, a more honest direction. We didn't, at the time, expect it to take them to marriage. <laughs> I mean, we, we actually initially were not planning on getting them uh, re-involved romantically, uh, certainly not uh, initially. Uh, they were going to be best friends. She was, he was finally going to have a confidant, but it being Mary Jane and you know her having revealed the things that she revealed about herself and her attitudes and her lifestyle, you know, the only thing lonelier than having nobody know is having the person who knows not really want to know, <laughs> you know, I, you know, right, yeah. uh, and and we saw a lot of story potential there for Pete. We saw a lot of angst there, potential angst there for Pete, because uh, you know that that the loneliness of the of that uh, secret is something that has always really resonated with me. That's one of the things with Pete that I. Uh, I really feel for the character on that on that end, and we took a few opportunities. Uh, I believe one was in was it two seventy five. Tom was that the anniversary issue, the fight with the hobgoblin at yes. the bus station. 
Yep, too soon. Um, we took that opportunity uh, before we were going to do a, re- a reprint of the origin that, you know, Pete actually kind of shot back at her that, you know, I, you know, I've, I've known your Spider-Man, but I really don't know how you became Spider-Man. And he said, Hey, you never asked, you know, it was, <laughs> it was one of those moments where he, you know, it, on the cusp of having somebody who knows and somebody that could possibly be a confidant, you know, Pete was feeling the fact that she was kind of, standoffish about it that she you know uh, certainly emotionally was, was was still being a little distant and wasn't ready to embrace being spider-man's best friend you know she wasn't really embracing the idea of being his support system and uh, and he spoke up about it in that scene so yeah and while i can't take any credit for mary jane discover you know announcing that she knew um Peter was Spider-Man. Ron can take full credit for that scene where, where um, Peter says, "You never asked." Uh, uh, I, I, I can't take no, full no, credit no, because you, you could have easily edited it out, but, uh, but or but, Danny could have. But it, it, that was what, what he's referring to, Curtis. Is that was one of my first times uh, where I mean, from the very beginning, Tom and I would have these wonderful conversations. I always felt very involved in the stories because Tom and I would have these wonderful conversations about the characters. So I always felt very, very involved in the storytelling process. But that scene was one of the first times that we, uh, because originally in 275, we weren't going to do a reprint of the origin. Uh, There's actually a penciled page floating around somewhere in the interweb of uh, like a a one-panel page of... Spider-Man recount of uh, Pete recounting his origin to Mary Jane. Okay? okay, then it was decided. Oh, you know what? It's an anniversary issue. Why don't we just reprint the origin? And everybody loved that idea, but we needed a lead-in to it because you know we dropped a page because the the page we dropped involved him them just walking through Central Park and then him telling it in one or two panels. So we dropped that page, and we had that page to use as a lead-in to the reprint. And I did. I suggested to Tom that he might have some feelings about it, rather than just say, you know, her ask and him go, okay, and tell the origin. Uh, we, we made it a, an emotional scene out of it, and, uh, and Tom was all for it. And I liner noted it and all this kind of stuff. I, you know, I mean, Tom scripted it, but, but I did make my liner notes and suggested some dialogue. And, and it was my first you know, kind of my first steps towards the, you know, the real give and take that the, the partnership ended up uh, becoming, and uh, very happily so. Um, while we're on the subject of um, issue 275, and before we talk about um, Harry and Liz, um, 275 has a, a cameo page from you, of you and Tom in it, right? Uh, you talking about that splash page? Yeah, the splash page. Well, that's not just Tom and I. That's also Joe Rubenstein and uh, and and James Owsley. Nice. Are also in the background there. Uh, the page, however, was inked by Brett Breeding. I don't remember why, but uh, Brett came in about halfway through that issue. Maybe it was the oversized nature of it. Maybe it was scheduling issues. I don't know. But Rubenstein did the first part of it. But Brett came in and wrapped it up. And by that page, Brett was already inking it. And uh, it, you know, at one point, I gave him the option. It had been penciled as Joe Rubenstein. I said, 
you know, I could either pencil a patch for you or make it you, or we could put you somewhere else in the shot, or, you know, what do you want to do? And he says, I'm not worried about it. I don't need to be in it. I, I'll just ink it with Rubenstein here, and that's fine with me. And I said, well, if, if you're sure, uh, because, you know, I, I certainly am willing to, to play with it. So, yeah, they, that, I, that was my little uh, my little nod to uh, to the creative team at the time. Yeah, nice. Well, you know, I, I, sometimes you wonder if the you know if the colorist is aware of it and all that kind of stuff, you know. So we don't worry about it that much. It just kind of is there for uh, you know. I, I, I'm surprised uh, on my Facebook page. I, I did a little write up about it. I was surprised how many people had never caught it, and uh, and the people that have caught Tom and I because they've seen us in photos over the years didn't realize that the rest of the team was also there as well. So. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for bringing it up. I appreciate it. <laughs> and there, you have another cameo. You might have more. I'm not sure, but there's another. I believe this cameo of you visiting Harry and Liz in the hospital. Uh, that is also true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I yes, love it. it was uh, me and the, my girlfriend at the time. I threw us in just for fun because there was going to there needed to be somebody there to react to Spider-Man jumping out of the elevator. Yep. But Mr. DeFalco, being, you know. Uh, goof uh, decided to put in dialogue that made it very obvious that it, it that it was uh, you know he called me by name and yeah. called my girlfriend at the time by name and we had flown in from Pittsburgh and all of that kind of stuff yeah so <laughs> Tom is adorable isn't he you know I'm trying <laughs> <laughs> that was before I became a legend oh that that's true that's it, true that was when he was just one of us you know uh Work-a-day freelancers. But those kind of things, that's why he's a legend. Exactly. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, okay, sure. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about Harry. This was kind of after his big ordeal uh, with drugs. He uh, He was quite a different character. Tell me about writing him a little bit. Yeah, you know, I... I'm trying to remember what the thought process was. I, well, I, I remember a little bit because, I mean, we were coming off of, I mean, Jerry Conway had kind of brought him back from where he had taken him with becoming, you know, a fake Green Goblin for a while and all that kind of stuff. And Jerry had brought him back out of the institution. And Roger, did Roger and J.R. him? Yeah, they kept him around as a supporting character, and he was sta- he was pretty stable. And uh, but it was e- but it was even uh, uh, Jerry or Len Wein and because it was during the Ross Andrew period that he met Liz and uh, and sparked with Liz, wasn't it? Yeah, because yeah. they drew the, uh, right. yeah. the, the Jerry and, and Ross did the uh, the wedding and everything. Yes. So all I remember uh, about Harry and, and Tom can go into more detail if he remembers any is that. We fully intended to give Harry and Liz a happy ending. That poor guy had been through the grinder, and he was a you know he was a good friend to Pete. I mean, my, during my favorite era of of Spider Man, which was you know Stanley, John Romita, Jim Mooney, Stanley, John Basema, John Romita, Jim Mooney, that period there, he was a good friend to Pete. He put up with a lot of crap from his roommate. Uh, and was a good friend to him. And, uh, you know, so when we did this scene with the warehouse fight where Hobgoblin is being Hobgoblin-y and then somebody throws a pumpkin bomb at him and he turns, and I think everybody on some level was expecting Harry to be in costume. 
right. uh, to, you know, oh, my gosh, it's going to be Hobgoblin versus Green Goblin and all this. And, you know, not that that would have been, wouldn't have been kind of cool, but we wanted to subvert that. We wanted to play against that for the very reason that Harry is just a guy trying to protect his wife and his, you know, kid to be born. Uh, so it was just Harry with the bag on throwing pumpkin bombs, you know. Um, it, we also wanted to show that Harry was never the Green Goblin. He never had the, you know, the, the, the drugs in his system at that point and all that kind of stuff. So he wasn't, he was never the real Green Goblin. But uh, I do remember Tom saying, you know, we're going to give this guy, we're going to give this guy a happy ending. Let's, let's cut him a break. And I was all for that uh, at the time. Uh, and and that, that's pretty much summed up by the, the birth of their kid. A lot of times what we did is, is we, you know, set you up thinking that we were going to do one thing and then did the total opposite. Um, like Ron said, we, we set it up so that people thought Harry would be the Green Goblin, but nah, you know, other guys are going to fall for the cliche. <laughs> We're going to do something <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a different direction. Um, and, and, you know, that, that was always our, our goal to... Um, you know, you know, keep you guessing as to what was going to happen next, and, uh, and, and let you think you you knew what was going to happen, and then you know, pull the rug out from under you, and, and, and you know, and go in a different direction. Um, you know, it, you know, it was our goal to entertain you. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and not, what could be more bizarre than actually giving a character a happy ending? Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> no. Nobody expected that. Um, you created two notable characters during your run here. Um, I'm thinking, only two? Oh, only Curtis? two. What, well, what, are you kidding me? <laughs> only two? <laughs> Something us. <laughs> well, I mean, my, my two favorites here are uh, Puma and Silver Sable. I think they are kind of the standouts. Oh, we knew who you meant. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was Fox, talking about Spider Kid. No. Yeah, Tom has a soft spot for Black Fox, so you know that's always one of his. That's true. Well, we can talk about him too. Um, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about creating Puma. Can you uh, give me a little bit of insight into his creation? Tom, you want to talk about the animal cards? <laughs> uh. So, you know, I think one night I was, you know, watching late night TV and they have this thing, you know, a bunch of animal cards. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to order those. And and I used them as the basis for a bunch of Spider-Man villains. You know, Black Fox, (laughs) Chris Abel, Puma. Um, And uh, the goal with with Puma was to kind of do... Um, at the time, you know, a modern day version of, of Craven the Hunter. Uh, we'd always figure out that, the, you know, his whole history, his whole backstory, and, and, and work out, you know, essentially write a, a, a small Bible on each character so that even if they had secrets, we knew where those secrets would ultimately lead you to. You know, you know, our, our characters were, were a mystery to everybody except us. Right. We had the blueprints. Well, and the one thing I always liked about Puma and working with Tom is that, you know, when you're 
the creator on a book like that, when you're creating new characters, you know, you get to choose who these people are and who they're going to go up against and, and who the people they're going to go up against are. So you can always pick one thing. And the one thing I remember about the Puma was Puma is actually faster than Peter Parker. Right. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, and, and we can do that because we thunk up the Puma. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that, you know, that's what makes Puma uh, a deadly foe for Spider-Man is that even with his spider sense, and it was shown several times visually and otherwise, even with his spider sense, his spider sense can warn him what his next move is going to be, but the guy is so fast, he still nails Pete. Wow. Yeah. And uh, that made him a, a, an incredibly deadly foe for, for Pete. He just was that fast. And, you know, that's what I enjoy about creating with the Falco, is that, you know, I mean, at one point we were... Uh, possibly going to be doing some superman material and you know if you're creating villains for superman create somebody who can give superman a fight that's how hard is that to do you get to think them up from you know from out of the ether so create and uh but that was definitely the case with puma i remember specifically he was faster and ron you came up with the costume of the design uh yes yes i did uh i came up with the suit uh, based on, well, actually, we went through a couple of different versions uh, because initially, I remember, uh, and I believe some of those sketches might have even been reprinted in uh, the book that Tom wrote of comic creators on Spider-Man, was uh, uh, the, um, the original idea that I was playing with was a human in a costume, and Tom was thinking more of a were-puma type of a character, you yeah. know. So uh, we went that direction, and we certainly tried to keep an Indian motif. And uh, it was, uh, you know, from there, once we, I knew what he was going for, uh, we actually did play with the costume a little bit along the way, mostly because of uh, coloring issues and things like that, that uh, uh, the parts of the costume that were initially supposed to be fur that was not his natural fur, was colored pretty much the same color as his natural fur. And I found that a little confusing, and, and uh, so I decided to kind of pair the costumes uh, down a little bit. And uh, so when he reappeared during Secret Wars 2, I decided, uh, I, I asked permission of the editor and, and cleared it with Tom, but we decided to, to kind of pair him down a little bit and make his body more of the suit and, uh, you know, not not put extra fur that he didn't really need and all that kind of stuff. And, and the coolest thing about that, we haven't talked about Silver Sable yet, but the coolest thing about those characters is that they resonated with, with other writers and other artists and uh, got used quite a bit by, uh, by later teams and everything, which was very, very cool. So. Yeah, I remember reading a lot of um, Conway, I think, used Puma quite a bit in his run on Web of Spider-Man or Spectacular Spider-Man. So Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, okay, let's move to uh, Silver Sable then. Where did her idea come from? Go ahead, Thomas. Uh, <laughs> I don't recall. <laughs> uh, you know, I I think I uh, I think it, it start, uh, the, the basic idea was, you know, I wanted to do a different kind of bounty hunter, 
and thought, what if it wasn't, you know, just one bounty hunter, but an organization that, you know, you know, is is basically a, a four hire, you know, bounty hunters or four hire mercenaries. Um, right. And then, you know, I thought, now, now who would hire those sort of places? And, 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 you know, I thought, oh, governments, insurance companies, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and you know, but, 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 but where would it come from? And then work backwards that, you know, her, her, her father had started an organization to hunt Nazi war criminals. But as, as the years went by, there were less Nazi war criminals. And then she decided to take the uh, business in a different direction. And, you know, just built it up from there. Uh, You know, it's always hard to figure out where the initial idea came from. Well, it it came from animal cards, for one thing, but yeah. Well, yes. Well, the name came from the animal cards. And And fables uh, are known as the the bounty hunters of the the forest. uh, Yes. Not true. Anyway, and visually, well, in that issue, ahead, we though. came up with Silver Sable and Black Fox. <laughs> well, actually, Black Fox—they were in the same huh? issue together, but Black Fox had appeared uh, prior to that. Oh, okay. Yeah, Black right. Fox appeared in two fifty-five. He he reappeared when we introduced Silver Sable. She was after him at the time, but uh, and he was always a favorite character of mine as well. But uh, visually, Silver Sable was basically. Uh, Marilyn Monroe, uh, you know, uh, we knew she was going to be European. I, my initial sketches even had her as a platinum blonde because we had Black Cat in the book at the time. So I didn't think having two characters with, you know, silver white hair would be a good idea. Thankfully, the editorial people disagreed with me and said, well, her name's Silver Sable. She's going to have silver hair. Right. So uh, she wore a lot of silver, duh, and... Uh, you know, I mean, because my attitude is, I, I you know, my assumption at the time was her name was not Silver Sable. Uh, I mean, of course, Greg Wright and Stephen Butler and a bunch of other guys, you know, did a lot of work with the character when she got her own book and came up with a backstory, filled in her backstory. They actually quite a bit stayed with Tom's original Bible, but... Um, uh, the the one thing that, that that didn't survive, I, I spoke about this a little bit on my Facebook page, was my. If you look at those initial stories that we did, my thought was that she was she was only like five foot five one. You know, I like the idea of this young, athletic, uh, short person running this crew of big brawny mercenaries. Yeah, yeah. So I like the idea of her not being statuesque and lethal and all this. I like the idea of her always being the shortest person in the room, but clearly in command. And if you look at those early issues, I think that does come through. She's even shorter than Pete, and Pete's 5'10", you know, that kind of thing. Okay. So uh, even with heels, she was shorter than Pete. So that was my thought. That Unfortunately, things like that are the first things that get lost when a character is done by other creative people and and handled by different artists and all that kind of stuff and it's nobody's fault i mean it's the way that black leather outfits be suddenly become white because people didn't put enough black shading on it you know things like that hmm. it's how the blue it's how it's how the beast went from gray to black to blue because people forgot he was supposed to be black you know that kind of thing 
So uh, it happens, and it's uh, nobody's fault. It's kind of like a game of telephone, a visual telephone. So. <laughs> and were you thrilled to see her character kind of take off? To, to oh, absolutely. Yeah. To even oh, yeah, have sure. a yeah. series. Sure. Yeah. Sure. It's, it's, yeah it's you you can't beat that. You. <laughs> I mean, for a while there, uh, Night Thrasher, New Warriors. Well, that was later, but Silver Sable and. Uh, you know, having their own series and everything. I, I, there's nothing more gratifying than than when your characters resonate with other writers and creative people. It's terrific. Nice. Yeah. And and there's even talk now that Sony's going to do a Silver Sable Black Cat movie. Wow. Yeah, supposedly they've hired the script writer. Uh, uh, what's the gentleman's name? Kyle? Uh, he worked on uh, Thor The Dark World and he's worked on the Marvel animated features and Oh, and, Yost? Uh, he worked, uh, Cal Yost, yeah. there you go. Yep. Uh, he's most recently been hired to pen a script for Silver Sable and the Black Cat. Yeah. Wow, so, I like uh, his work, he's great. Well, and they're, they're doing the two characters that I didn't think should be in the same panel because they both have <laughs> silver white hair. I guess that's And they're right. thinking, of doing, well, who knows? In the movie, neither one of them might have silver white hair. Who the hell knows, but. It'll be a good, a good visual, one with a white costume, one with a black costume. Uh, if they yeah. keep any of that. If, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we'll it could we'll all just have to wait and see what the adaptation <laughs> involves. Sure, sure. Right. Believe me, I, I don't think I'm going to get called for the casting sessions, you know? <laughs> what were you thinking, Mr. Friends, when you actually designed her? You know, I, I don't think Stephen Butler or Gordon Purcell or any of the guys that worked on the Silver Sable title, I don't think... Uh, Greg Wright or Tom are going to be in there on the story meeting. You know? <laughs> no, they tend to n try to not talk to those people as much as possible. Exactly. Yeah. I know. I was talking to Steve Englehart, and he was quite. Uh, he was a little miffed at um, Mantis coming up in this Guardians movie here. They didn't talk right. to him about her at all. Well, yeah. I I'm sorry if he was surprised by that. No, I don't think he was surprised. He's just still okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's uh, the nature of the beast. It sure is. Yeah. Well, maybe you can get a cameo in there at least. I don't know. <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> quit getting my quit getting my hopes up. Hey, if no, Stan I mean, can do uh, it. We, well, we got we got a special thanks credit in uh, uh, the Ant Man movie. Oh, you for, did? I didn't notice that because they used the name Hope for his for oh, Hank Pym's yeah. daughter. Right, of course. Because that was from that was from the MC Two A Next series. Yeah. That you know, and, and obviously, when they decided to go with the two generations, I, I give them a little bit of credit that somebody went, uh, somebody check Wikipedia. Did Hank Pym ever yeah, have right. a daughter? And they checked it, and even though it hadn't happened yet, it's in the future. They went, yeah, hope, and they went, okay, we'll use that because back in the day, that never happened. Right. You know, on the the old Spider-Man TV series, Jonah Jameson had a black secretary, but they chose not to name her Glory Grant. <laughs> Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. So I'd say, what was the point of that? You know? Right. Wow. Well, wow. thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat about Spider-Man. What a joy talking to both of you guys. It's so much fun. Well, thank you for your interest. After all these thank years, you. it's thank always you. nice to be remembered. And um, if we ever get around to talking about um, MC2 in on my podcast, I'll give you guys another ring, that's for sure. All right. Well, okay. if another Thor volume comes out and everything, now that we got the whole three-way thing hooked up, uh, you know, I can be sure to keep Tom honest. Yes. That's <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Perfect. Ron actually remembers things. I, you know, 
Less and less. You put the whammy on me, Tom. I never <laughs> thought that I, that I would get to the point where people would interview me and I would be up for an answer on things because <laughs> I was such a fan and I enjoy, I've enjoyed every minute of it. But it, it actually has started to happen where people will ask, what were you thinking when you did this? And I, 30 years, I have no idea, you know. So uh, <laughs> it's catching up with me as well. Well, I see well, that a lot of people are doing that on your Facebook page too. So that keeps you keeps your memory going, I think. It really has been fun looking through a lot of the old Xeroxes and uh, and writing some of those posts. It has really put me in touch with just how lucky and and uh, how much fun it's been. So uh, it, it's been a positive thing for me. As well.